from Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. Rikers Island in New York City houses a complex of 10 jails, and although some might think of the facility in terms of statistics and numbers, Ruvain Blau and Graham Raymond's new book, Rikers, an Oral History, documents Rikers' history from the 70s until today, from the point of view of people that spent parts of their lives at the prison. The pair of journalists interviewed more than 130 incarcerated people, correctional officers, wardens, investigators, and commissioners to explain everything from food to violence on the island. Today we'll talk to Blau, a reporter for the city, and Raymond, a reporter for the New York Daily News, about the book and the future of Rikers. It's Wednesday, March 8th, and this is News Nerds. For almost 100 years, the 10 prisons on Rikers have held thousands of New Yorkers. The new book, Rikers and Oral History, looks at the criminal justice system in in a new way. Graham Rayman and Ruvain Blau interviewed more than 130 former inmates, correctional officers, investigators, and wardens to get an inside view of the prison. The book that followed is separated into more than two dozen sections focused on aspects of life at Rikers, including contraband, food, and solitary confinement. Joining us now are the two co-authors of the book. First, Graham Raymond, a reporter covering criminal justice and policing for the New York Daily News. He's also the author of the book, The NYPD Tapes. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Next, Ruvain Blau is a senior reporter at The City. He also covers Rikers and the criminal justice system for the outlet. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, it's it's remarkable that you got the the participation of many many former detainees, uh, COs, correctional officers, wardens, and and many more people that were involved with the inner workings of the Rikers prison system. So did you have a trouble trouble finding these people, um, and and were they willing to talk, or did it take some uh, <clears throat> some convincing from you both? Well, in, in some cases, there were there were people that Ruvain and I knew for a very long time. Um, uh, in other cases, it was word of mouth. One person that we knew would would lead us to somebody else would suggest, "Hey, we should you should talk to to this guy." And uh, just following that thread, um, you know, what, one of the great parts of this journey was that it was such an experience in gratitude and in people being willing to share this very intimate details of their lives, sometimes some of the most important moments of their lives um, with us. It was, it was, you know, just those interpersonal connections really helped. How, how did you do these interviews? Because I'm always curious, um, as somebody that does interviews my, myself and kind of uh, is interested in connecting people um, and talking to them about their life experiences, were these interviews done uh, at their houses, and and how long did they end up going going on? I, I mean, Rikers and and what they went through at Rikers must have been a subject that they had a lot to talk about. Yeah, that's a great question. I it, you know it really depends. Um, you know, we started the project before COVID, and then COVID hit, and so a lot of the stuff really went you know kind of on the phone. Uh, I think the majority of interviews we do typically day to day are also okay. on the phone. I think Graham did. A little more in person than I did. We did interview kind of before COVID. We we got this great interview of Ron Tackman, who 
uh, sort of quote unquote escaped from from Rikers a few times, and he right. was actually in an upstate prison. And he, it was just an incredible interview because it was in this big, huge room. He was in the medical unit in in this upstate prison, and it was almost like out of a movie. It was, it was kind of almost empty, and it was just me and him. And in the in the corner of the room was this guard with this huge kind of nightstick and fell asleep while we were talking. And you know, we talked maybe three four hours. Um, and he actually sadly passed away a few months after the interview and he had never talked about one of the times he tried to escape. He had a bar of soap he, and he fashioned it into a, a gun that looked like almost like identical to a gun. And he put actually kind of like a little bit of steel on it to make it when he banged it against the window, the, the security window, when they were transporting him, it's, you know, it's to make it sound more real for, for his whole life. He had never publicly had talked about how he smuggled it onto the bus. He was always very coy about that. And, you know, I told him, I said, Ron, I said, you know, this might be your last interview, here's your chance. You know, you can kind of talk about, you know, how you did this. So that was kind of a, a great moment when he shared that. Did you both have any, any problems or any uh, hesitation when, when you went into an interview with someone that uh, was, was different from you, either in, in race, uh, gender, or just a complete different background than both of you? Did, did that challenge, um, you know, extracting their story? No, no, not that so much. Um, there, there was one interview that I did where the gentleman, he had just gotten out of prison after a very long time, and he asked for an enormous amount of money in the, in the middle of the interview to continue the interview. And, you know, we don't pay for interviews. And that, you know, his request was <laughs> was so high that it was, <laughs> was, wasn't even worth talking about. But, but so I politely excused myself from that interview. More interestingly, we had been trying to get uh, this retired chief to talk to us, who shall go uh, nameless here. But uh, he said very oddly, he said, I've been told not to talk to you. Wow. And so I tried to get from him, who told you not to talk to us? And why did they tell you not to talk to us? Because we cast a very wide net in this book. We tried to talk to everybody who who, who would do it. And I never quite understood that. That was a that was uh, one of the odder exchanges of the of the working on this book. You know, I think the bottom line to us is, and you know, not to kind of oversimplify it, but it's like you know, people are in Rikers, and some people have done you know, kind of are charged. Most almost ninety percent, over ninety percent, are not convicted. So that's another important kind of fact to remember. Right. But look, some people are there and, and have been convicted, and you know, and admittedly have had problems with the law over the years. And you know, we just felt like it wasn't important to focus in on what they did and what they did to get in there. It was there. It was this is a book about that experience. And to be perfectly frank, no one, none of the people that we interviewed, or none of the people in New York City ever, are sentenced to death. You know, and people have died there. No one sentenced to rape, and people have been raped there, and people are sexually assaulted, and you know, no one sentenced to eating you know disgusting food. I mean, these are kind of understood forms of torture, and we wanted to highlight that experience and how people are experiencing that as well. So let's get into the daily life of somebody who is at Rikers. Uh, can you guys explain what it's like to be somebody that's held at Rikers? What's a what's a typical day like? We we can distill it down to something we call bullpen therapy, which is one of the chapters in the book. It, that's just the act of going to court. And, and just to illustrate one element of how debilitating it can be to be at Rikers, you get woken up at four in the morning, and this is just to go visit court you're shuttled from from one pen to another then onto a bus then to another pen then to another pen then to another pen and then as the day progresses it, now we're in the afternoon it's getting later you may not even see a judge or or have your case get called and then by the time you get back it's eight or nine o'clock 
you've missed dinner. And then people who we interviewed in the book said that this process, when it's repeated over and over again, over like a period of two years of pretrial detention, it, be, it becomes so debilitating that, that people plead guilty just to get out of it. Either they, they'd rather be upstate, they'll take the deal that the district attorney is offering or do whatever they can to get bailed out or whatever. That's just one example of the, the kind of thing that, that uh, you have to go through. And you, and you write in the book, uh, or I guess you, when you, when you, the structure of the book is, is not your writing uh, very much. You just introduce the, the chapter. Uh, I guess the people that you talk to in the book say that that's a very, very common daily procedure. Uh, so what about a staff member at Rikers? What's, what's their daily schedule? I mean, it's, it really kind of varies. There's something called the wheel in Rikers um, or the Department of City Department of Correction where there's the schedule is broken up into three different shifts, like in the morning kind of day and then night shift. And this is one of the struggles that they've had, the Department of Correction has had for many, many years. They they sort of issues with the contract, with the collective bargaining agreement. But basically like, you know, people can go from, you know, having a day shift to a night shift to a, you know, a day shift in the same month, in the same week. And it it's just incredibly draining. You know, that's just more of the scheduling issue. Uh, you know, it depends on where you're assigned. There's, you know, the 10 jails, the different jails have kind of higher levels of classification. A lot of people right now, there's a huge kind of crisis of absenteeism. So people, a lot of the officers are being forced to work double and, and even triple shifts sometimes and, and just, just beyond exhausted and kind of sleeping, you know, in their cars in between the shifts, you know, they're obligated to kind of stay on, on the shift until, you know, they're, they're relieved. So they just kind of get stuck there sometimes. A lot of the staff is is minority, uh, black and brown people, and a lot of kind of moms, a lot of single moms. Um, so there's a real struggle sometimes. We know if there's some issues going on at home with their children. You know, if there's a big snowstorm, they have the highest absentee rate in the city typically as well. Like usually up to a thousand people calling out sick on any given day. Uh, you know, so it really depends. Like it, it kind of varies on where you're at, where you're on the chain. You know, if you're a regular CO, if you're a captain or your deputy warden. But it's tough, you know. It's a really intense job. There's something in your city called the CAFR, which is like this, this uh, thing that the city actuary keeps track of, and they use it for pension purposes. And it, it highlights how long the life expectancy is of a correction officer. Because they 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 do this to kind of estimate their pension costs in the long term. And, and they have the lowest life expectancy of any city worker in the city right now. I think it's like I think it's barely 60 years old. People talk about how difficult it is just stepping on when you just get on the island, you get off the bridge and park, and the stress level just goes through the roof. One of the one of the more moving stories in the book is a retired correction officer named Christine West. Years years after she's retired, she she talks about being on the wheel as Ravane described and and missing her daughter's birthdays, sports games, events at school for year after year after year because she was working overtime or had been called back to work extra shifts. And and you know this is something they carry with them. She missed much of her her. She has another daughter, but her first daughter's. Uh, growing up because of, of, you know, working this job and uh, still regrets it. And one of you just mentioned that many of the the people that are held at Rikers aren't actually sentenced of, of uh, any crime. Can you, can you explain how that works? Sure. Well, people are, you know, you get arrested and then you go through central booking and then you're handed over to DOC. Uh, you get arraigned and you're handed over to, to uh, the correction department. So you're, you've been arrested and charged with a crime in the United States. You know, you, you're not convicted if you've been arrested. You, you still have a, a open charge. You're, you're considered innocent until proven guilty. And uh, that pretrial period in Rikers can take more than a year awaiting 
awaiting trial. And so you're stuck in Rikers. It can be two years. It can be three years. It can be four years. And, and so the penalty that that exacts on the individual, once again, leads them to consider pleading guilty. It, it puts a lot of pressure on the person who's being held for a long period of time. You know, they lose their job because they can't get to work. They lose their girlfriend. They lose their partner. They lose their apartment. Um, there's a lot of incentives for, for them to get out of the case. And, and it gives, you know, whether intended or not, it gives prosecutors an advantage when they're trying to get a conviction. You know, for the book, we interviewed, I interviewed this woman, her name is Sophia Elijah, who's been around for a long time. And she's, she's done, uh, she worked as a public defender and she's also worked as the executive director for Family Alliance for Families for Justice, which is a kind of an advocacy group right now. And she had this great line and she said, you torture people until they say exactly what you want them to say. Do you have any sense of if this practice is common in not only New York and, and Rikers, but also the criminal justice system nationally? I don't have a really good handle on the the uh, statistics of pretrial, the length of pretrial detention, but I do know that that it's it's longer at Rikers than it is in most places. Certainly, um, there's a there's like a built-in inefficiency in the way that in where Rikers is, I think, in the complexity of the New York court system and the volume of cases, I think people tend to spend much less time awaiting trial in other jurisdictions than uh, than than they do here. There's been, and I don't know if you're familiar with this or your listeners are familiar, but there's been a, a, a huge criminal justice argument about bail reform in New York City. And it was changed, a lot was changed, I think, in 2019. It's been changed a few other times since. But essentially, there, there was this case with this guy, Khalif Browder. It was this really kind of tragic story where he was charged, this young teen was charged with stealing a knapsack. And he was in Rikers for about, I think it was close to three years. Um, he spent huge chunks of it in solitary confinement. There's videos of him being assaulted by the officers. And he came out and sadly, shortly thereafter, took his own life. And it was highlighted uh, by Jennifer Gonerman in this New Yorker piece that was really kind of groundbreaking. For many, many years, the city system worked where the bail was set. The law could only be technically used to set if someone can return the risk of someone returning to court or not. And that was the technical rule. We all know that that kind of wasn't really how judges used it. They used it kind of um, as a way to assess risk assessment as well. Uh, you know, they felt like if somebody was charged with murder, they generally would, you know, set bail or remand the person. But there was just kind of a lot of confusion about what happened with these lower level crimes. And frequently people were getting stuck in Rikers, uh, which no one thinks is a good place to be, you know, frankly, kind of life-threatening for minor low-level offenses. So the state legislature came in and, and essentially just got rid of bail, bail as we know it in New York City. And there's been a lot of controversy about it because there's some challenges about, you know, how do you handle people who, who kind of reoffend, you know, continually? And, and you know, there's a kind of a, a real lack of services or lack of sort of what to do with people who are mentally ill. You know, currently over 50% of the population in Rikers Island right now or the city jail is, has some type of mental illness diagnosis, including 60% with a serious mental illness diagnosis. So there's a real challenge in New York about like, you know, this pre-trial, what do you do pre-trial with people? And obviously they're outliers. You know, I don't want to make it clear that there are serious cases where like there's murder offenses or charges. You know, the person will will frequently, not frequently, sometimes people that kind of know the system and they'll change lawyers and that will really slow it down. They'll, you know, refuse to go to trial. Um, so, you know, th you know, it's not just the system itself. I mean, it, the system is designed to kind of, if, if worked properly to make sure that that doesn't happen and that there aren't these sort of delays that go on. 
again, this is really in the weeds, but I wanted to add this one part because it is very relevant right now in New York City. You know, Mayor Eric Adams is here, and this first year there's this office in his in in City Hall. It's called Mockjay. It's known as Mockjay. It's the Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice, and they were actually the office that was really influential in, in making sure that people were getting out during COVID. And the jail population for the first time in over 70 years, I think it was like since the 40s, uh, was reduced to lower than 4,000, and that was largely because. Mock J, you know, made a huge effort to kind of target and identify people who were low-level offenders and were okay being released uh, during the pandemic. Since then, you know, Eric Adams has actually kind of really gutted Mock J, and the population is expected to go up to uh, close to 7,000. And that number is significant because the closed Rikers, and I'm sure we're going to get to this later, but like the closed Rikers plan calls for the population to be shrunk to 3,300. And that is kind of like the, the golden target number that the city needs to hit or close to that to to kind of close the Rikers facilities and open up these four kind of state-of-the-art uh, GLs that are currently kind of in the process of being designed. You have a chapter in the book where you interview people about gangs and how the prison has changed over time regarding which gang has the upper hand. Um, but what really struck me was that it seems like the gangs had a lot of power over how each prison operated. And it seemed like they they even had a little bit more power than some of the correctional officers or officials at the jail. Can you can you tell uh, listeners kind of how the balance of of gangs in the prison has changed over time? In the 70s and 80s, the, the gangs were either based on the borough that people were from or people who were aligned to these very large drug gangs during the crack epidemic. And then in the late 80s, a new group of gangs began to evolve that were more based on ethnicity. The first big gang was the Latin Kings, followed by the Bloods. And when you have a huge number of gang members in a given jail of the same gang, it creates a, a power imbalance that that puts everybody else in danger. I mean, that's the simple answer to your question. Um, you know, if you have a, a dorm of 50 detainees and 40 of them are bloods, then the other 10 people are in big trouble. What that leads to is extortion, the power or the control over the phones, control over commissary, threats of violence, uh, slashings, um, all kinds of, uh, of other crimes, uh, contraband smuggling, all kinds of things that happen in the jails. The Department of Correction tried to counter it in various ways, either by, basically they had two choices, either create housing units with only gang, gang members from the same gang or trying to mix them. So there was an even balance between the two. And they've kind of uh, vacillated or gone back and forth over these, these two strategies for, for a long time. The Latin Kings grew quite large, but then the, when, the, when the Bloods grew in the early 90s, they, they can, as the years progressed, as the decades progressed, they grew so large that they spread outside of the jails and into many of the neighborhoods in New York City where they, where they continue to cause violence. So today there's dozens and dozens of unaffiliated gangs that claim that they're Bloods. And then there's other kind of connected blood groups all over the city, and they continue to influence what happens at Rikers in a, in a very big way. Um, I want to get to COVID and how it's affect the jail system. In almost 100 years of, of Rikers history, has the prison system really experienced an outbreak of an infectious disease besides COVID? I'm just thinking back to earlier decades. Um, there was a meningitis outbreak in the 50s that, that I read about. And it was a small article in the New York Times. Um, COVID, by you know, by far, it was the greatest in terms of the number of people it affected. 
you know, one thing about about the correction department is, it, it, in addition to the sort of negative history that it has, it also was uh, ahead of the game in. Uh, uh, I think they created the first HIV AIDS war AIDS uh, unit in the country. So that was, you know, one of the forward thinking things that they did, and that unit still exists in a, in one of the jails called the West facility. I mean, it's really one of the parts of the book that you know we didn't get into as much as we you know probably would have liked to, but. Mm-hmm. I interviewed somebody and I actually can't remember who it was at this point. Um, he told me this incredible story where, you know, he he was in a housing unit where somebody was suffering from HIV. He was HIV positive. And uh, I mean, sadly, you know, he he talked about it in great detail about watching this guy like just wither away and suffer tremendously. I talked to, uh, I did talk to Dr. Uh, Robert Cohn or Bobby Cohn as he's known. He's on the city board of correction right now. He's on the oversight board. He was there, uh, you know, kind of involved in medical during the AIDS epidemic and crisis, you know, Um, and, uh, you know, like very much like a lot of things in New York City, the way it works is like the undesirables, you know, kind of quote unquote undesirables end up in Rikers, right? Like the people who the city doesn't want to deal with or, or identify or assist, you know, the people with the most severe needs end up there. And, um, you know, like everything else in the city, there was there was a lack of resources, a lack of you know understanding, and and a lack of kind of quality care. I mean, I think they did their best, and people who were involved in it at the time are, are are proud of kind of how they were did their best to kind of help people. But it it was uh, you know it was a very dark period. I mean, it, obviously COVID you know more recently, but the I think the deaths by far surpassed you know during the AIDS epidemic. I mean, I, I think one of the things. What COVID is shocking is honestly, is that there is the death number is like, I think it's in the like or low teens. I mean, I think there's some accusations that at some point people who are very, very sick, they, they release, you know, they kind of release them on compassionate release, you know, shortly before they died. So the numbers are, 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 uh, you know, I question the numbers. Um, but even if you add some, you know, kind of questionable cases, the numbers are frankly kind of shockingly low. Um, I think people were worried that the numbers would be way higher. I mean, it, it's a moment. It's interesting to see, like we talked to people who, said that they didn't want people who had COVID coming into their units. Like, it seems like almost like independently, the people who were there were aware of the, you know, how contagious this was and were trying their best to kind of stay away from them. And um, so there was, you know, there was a lot of separation. They did kind of create a COVID unit for them, for the people who did have it. And, but, you know, I interviewed uh, uh, the family, uh, a grieving family whose who's son and, and uh, brother, uh, the mom and the, and the sister, uh, I interviewed the mom and the sister who passed away during COVID. And it's, it was just, it's absolutely heart-wrenching you know they were the communication was limited uh, the understanding was limited and ultimately he was in the hospital and passed away and you know his mom wasn't able to really visit much and and uh you know the funeral was was delayed as well when i was reading through the book uh i noticed that many of the it's, it covers a large period of time it covers from i think the 80s until now um and you talk to a bunch of people that have been involved with rikers in some way since then and some of those people were detained in the 80s or 90s and you know many might say that that was a long time ago but uh it seems like they still had deep memories and and uh deep connections to rikers do you have any sense of how their lifestyle or or mental health or physical health has been affected because of their stints at rikers I'll give an example. One of the people interviewed, Donovan Drayton, was in Rikers five years pre-trial. He went in at 19 and came out at 24. He was in for uh, facing a murder charge, which was eventually knocked down to, I can't remember it, but something close to a misdemeanor. And But he still spent five years. And he spent close to 400 days across that period in solitary confinement. You can't do that without experience, without having some long-term uh, post-traumatic stress 
stuff stuff to to deal with i mean it, it you know you, you have to have therapy you can't just um it's a life-changing experience um at the end of the book there's a man named casimiro torres who 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 tells a story about uh a, a young woman that he knows says you never smile and uh she said she was going to start calling him smiley and he he reflected on that and essentially you know you just don't lose that sort of wariness. I, I experienced this in the interviews with, with uh, people who had been incarcerated for a significant amount of time. You don't lose the wariness. There's, there's an alertness there that, that is not there for people who haven't been through this kind of post-traumatic stress, where, you know, where they sit in the room, for example, the constant watching of people going by. I don't know how to describe it really. It's just a, just this alertness at all times about possible threats. That that's the thing. One of the themes that I saw uh, when I interviewed people um, who've been incarcerated for a substantial amount of time. I mean, I think that was what we wanted to do with this book in part is just to show that it's not just the moment that you're there, right? Like it's the scar that like just doesn't leave. Like we and it's not it's not just the detainees. We interviewed a Sidney Schwartzbaum, somebody who who Graham and I know for many years. He was a former head of the assistant deputy wardens, deputy wardens association, the union representing kind of the top line supervisors. He told us this amazing story where he said that his wife would tell him he was waking up yelling in his sleep, do some up, do some up, which is the kind of our, the order that he would give to the detainees to kind of go two by two on the side of the wall when, you know, when they were going down the corridors, um, you know, and this is years later, he's retired. He's been retired for several years already. It's that it just doesn't leave you. Are there any stories that you got out of people that will stay with you for the rest of your careers? Because you've already been reporting about the criminal justice system for, for many years, but I think that this book offers a unique uh, look into the system. You know, we talked about Khalif Browder and there was one that stuck with me, uh, you know, and then Sophia Elijah, she was on a, a panel with his mom um, and, you know, under the table, she told me that they, she had, she was, you know, she was talking to the audience and under the table, she had mentioned that she was like squeezing her hand that, you know, this trauma that existed was like, it was so difficult for her to talk about, you know, her son who had passed and and what had happened to him there. Um, you know, and it's, it's not, you know, the most sort of gory story or the most sort of like over the top, you know, craziness, but to me, it stuck with me in that you know, how private some, you know, the struggle is for people. And, you know, even in this public way where like, you know, people are kind of honoring his memory, you know, just the, that trauma and, and how how powerful it is and the tragedies that just don't just kind of go away from, they don't just disappear just because, you know, we finished talking about them or the, you know, talking about them in the book or in any other way, like this is, this is permanent. Yeah, certainly. I mean, along that, that theme, there are a couple of stories. I'll just pick one. In 2012, a man named Ronald Spear was, murdered by a guard in, in, uh, in Rikers. He was in Rikers because he had been arrested a number of times for shoplifting, all these low-level arrests. But what a lot of people didn't really know, and, and, and I didn't know this until I interviewed his sister, was that you know, he, he had raised these two little boys, uh, two little nephews of his, but this is before he was in Rikers, obviously, when their mother was unable to care for them. For several years of their lives, these two little boys were raised by Ronald Spear they were like six, seven, eight years old. Fast forward to today, uh, one of those boys is now 32 years old and uh, he's starting his own group home for teenage runaways in South Carolina, in part to honor the, the memory of Ronald Spear, who was killed in Rikers. 
And so uh, to me, this sticks with me uh, a great deal because this is an example of the generosity of Ronald Spear, the, the humanizing of Ronald Spear as a, as, a, as a person rather than somebody who was a Rikers. And then the paying it, the paying his generosity back, even even though he's gone, the paying of his generosity back by this this young man. It's um, it's quite a moving, quite a moving thing, and it, it just gets to what we want to do, which is humanize both people who have been held in Rikers and the correction staff who who have to deal with this. It's it's, it's a human story, and it and it can't be viewed in abstraction. So before we go today, I want to talk about the potential process for the thousands of prisoners on Rikers to be moved to a different facility that might be more equipped to deal with them in a more uh, humane way. Where does the process stand now? And what are the plans that are getting the most traction? So there's a there's a closed Rikers uh, plan in, in, in motion. And uh, it was started by the primary mayor of Lazio. He was dragged into it. Essentially, there was a, a panel that was commissioned to kind of look into this. And then he kind of reluctantly has, has approved this and accepted this idea. Uh, the city council, which which kind of you know runs, you know drafts the laws here. There's a law they passed the law, and the mayor signed it. Obviously, there can no longer be a jail or kind of a penal colony essentially on Rikers Island by 2027. And obviously, there's loopholes to that potentially, like if you know if there's a need for extension. But you know there's a deadline, and by 2027 they are supposed to be off Rikers Island. They were being replaced by four sort of so-called borough-based jails, which are uh, in Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, and uh, Manhattan. Uh, Staten Island does not have one. It's the smallest borough, and also they just, there was no political will to kind of put one there. In Queens and in Brooklyn, there are currently were jails. There's There were two kind of large jails that were there in these locations already, pre-existing near the courthouses. And what they're doing is they're demolishing those jails, and they are planning on building kind of larger sort of state-of-the-art sort of so-called state-of-the-art facilities where there's more room for programming there's kind of open open area housing areas where like there's better vision sites for uh, officers and just the idea that they're going to be really close to the courthouse and uh you know transporting people is going to be better you know just a better process quicker faster easier for people to come visit and just easier for just the entire you know kind of environment as well it's a long process and everything in new york the pro- the cost has already gone up it was about eight billion Initially, and now it's gone to ten. You know, there was there was literally the city council speaker today was Adrian Adams. This this morning was was giving her state of the city speech, uh, and she she her mom was a former correction officer, and she talked about she specifically singled out how there is a need to close Rikers and how she supports that. And there's been a lot of cuts to other areas in the budget this year, but uh, there is money in the budget this year for that plan. You know, it's a slow moving plan. They're they're doing demolition. They put out. They took a while to kind of seek uh, firms to do this demolition. So that's kind of slow rolling. And the details are, are really kind of sparse as far as how they're going to do this, right? Because Rikers right now has kind of a medical unit on the island and a woman, a unit for women as well. And the, you know, the big question is like, are you going to replicate that in each of the boroughs or are you going to just, you know, create another facility just for women in one of the boroughs? It's more central. Uh, you know, then you deal with the, the issue of transportation as well. And so there's a lot of questions about what this is going to look like and how this will be designed. But it's moving, and and there is a 2027 deadline. Well, thank you both so much. Well, uh, I I hope to hear from you and read your reporting more as as all of this kind of unfolds in New York. And we'll we'll definitely I'll definitely keep in touch with you both to see how uh, this is going. So thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so for much. having us. Thanks so much, Ezra. It was, it's a real pleasure.
That was my interview with journalists Ruvain Blau and Graham Raymond about their book, Rikers, An Oral History, which was published in January. Nerds is produced and hosted by me. We're on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com where you can catch up with episodes that you missed, subscribe to our newsletter, play our daily mini crosswords, and contact us. Find News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We're also on community radio station KGVM every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time. They're at kgvm.org or 95.9 FM on your radio. Consider supporting them by going to kgvm.org slash support dash kgvm. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.